Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Arts Roundup, an hour on the arts where we'll delve into film screenings with a new slant, discover the psyche and art of ancient Persia, talk to a prize-winning local author and sample some new contemporary choral music. In this edition, Cambridge filmmaking consortium Nerf turns the city house inside out and shows off its latest celluloid creations. We investigate the art of Shanameh, the ancient Persian Book of Kings, at a contemporary music and dance performance. Director of the Konkanenda Choir, Alexandra Schwinn, launches a new album and previews a contemporary choral music concert. Cambridge artist Gail de Cordova previews her new exhibition at Clare College Gallery. And Escance Publishing releases a new anthology of short stories from finalists of an international writing competition. Imagine turning over the secrets of your Cambridge home to a group of filmmaking artists who then set about creating a short film inspired by interpreting the contents of each room and then go on to show the film in that same room to a group of browsing guests. Sounds a bit outlandish, but the results of Cambridge-based experimental film collaboration Nerf Film Consortium are quite remarkable. The group of nine artists was founded seven years ago with the help of the Arts Picture House, Kettles Yard and the Cambridge Film Consortium and won funding from the Arts Council as well as a helping hand from Anglia Ruskin University. Artist Anna Cady introduces the Nerf at Home event. Uh, can, can we talk about some of the things that you're exhibiting here? Um, obviously uh-huh. there's lots of things we can hear in the background yes, going on yeah. because there's a, a screen in the garden, there's mm-hmm. a screen in, in, in every different room yeah, sure. um, in the house and lots of people yes. um, enjoying the films and, and yes. milling around. Um, but what we've got in the, um, in the front room, um, there seems to be um, a film about um, families and people's inner worlds. What's that about? Well, you're quite right, it is about that, but mm-hmm. in fact, what we've all tried to do is respond in some way to the house, to our relationship to Ernie, whose mm. house it is, and he's one of the group. So we've, so she has looked at photographs that are around the house and, and, and is displaying them above the mantelpiece, which really gives them a kind of pathos that's very moving. Uh, is that, that's really all about um, private familial emotions and special moments, isn't it? I guess it is, and yet it's seeing other people's, because it's Mm. not hers. Mm. So the person who made the film, it's not about her her moments, Mm. it's Mm. about looking at somebody else's moments. Looking at someone else's moments, yeah. Um, Yes, I was going to say, the the technology requirements for this seem to be quite complicated, and and, and, and Uh is it quite expensive, and where do you get it all from? Well, we've all (laughs) managed to get our own projectors by now, but um, it's it's been building up slowly. And, for instance, with my piece, I've I've got... um, uh, wireless headphones, mm. but I've I've actually borrowed them for the occasion. Mm. I haven't bought them. Mm-hmm. I think I might be tempted now because they're so ex- so exciting to use. Um, uh, tell me about this piece mm. because one goes up the stairs um, in the house mm-hmm. and you can see um, a, a film being projected um, askance sideways on the stairwell, yes. um, mm-hmm. and then your your piece is in the the, the top front mm-hmm. bedroom. Um, one part showing um, inside a picture frame uh, and another part um, on a wall. Um, I see that you're the somebody 
somebody um, apparently writing a diary um, <laughs> in it, and then um, these paintings which have um, an interesting, well, the drawings that have a very interesting story behind them. Can yes. you tell me what that's all about? Well, er- this is Ernie's house, yeah. and that is the place where he works and his and where it's mm. his bedroom, mm. um, but it's also got his desk in. So mm. it was very interesting that he and I are both presenting our work in the same space, yeah. which overlap, and it's about how we both think about what Nerf does for us. Mm. So he's actually writing and thinking about what Nerf is, mm-hmm. and it, in my piece, and then I'm writing, projecting that onto my hands, and mm. I'm writing it with my voice, mm. and then you get my voice in your right ear and his voice in your left ear, mm. slowly revealing what what Nerf means to us, Nerf, mm. the, the film group. Mm. But his piece in the corner then is about his brother's um, life and his brother's work, which he's researching at the moment, mm. which mm. is a very moving story. Mm. The host for this month's event was artist Ernie Dalton, whose house is in Brunswick Terrace. Are you an artist yourself? Well, I was a a playwright and a performer in my 20s and 30s, and then I went into having a family and uh, doing other kinds of things to make money, mainly teaching in medical schools, actually. (laughs) Um, you've given over your house to um, a group of, um, well, there were nine, but again, there's eight artists. In this yeah, even though Nerf uh, is seven, uh, which is, you know, yeah. ironic. <laughs> um, and um, basically your house has been um, looked at by the artists, um, yeah. and they've looked at all the spaces in it, and then yeah. they've looked at your life, yeah. and then they've decided that they're going to reinterpret the things that they saw yeah. and create these wonderful it's, films. Yeah, it's, Are you surprised at the result? Of, well, it's, mu- it's much better as art yeah. than as life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The, in the um, upstairs bedroom, yeah. um, there's a rather um, in- interesting uh, two-screen um, show there with, yeah. a, with a soundtrack that one listens to through um, headphones. But that tells a, a, a rather um, heart-wrenching story about your brother's life, doesn't it? Uh, the drawings. Oh. Well, my brother, uh, mm. my brother is a, an artist mm. and has been um, uh, basically uh, um, doing a series of drawings. He's always been interested in the mm. in the context of following a line. It's a kind of key artistic mm. kind of attention and mm. fascination. Mm. Yeah. And um, and the subject of it was that he um, he, uh, he had a um, an experience where his wife had a serious car crash um, uh, some decades ago, and um, he spent most of his time caring for her. At the same time, conducting experiments in drawing, because you know he'd been an artist in his younger life, and he returned to it with um, a, a rather um, a powerful um, investigation of contemplation and discovery through art, which is extraordinary. 1,500 images, uh, drawings, that's yeah. quite, quite a fantastic record, isn't it? It, it is, mm. and, and I always was amazed at how much um, attention he needed to both pay to, to the art, mm. as well as taking care of his wife. Mm. I mean, and he was distracted from neither. Mm. This is a great, great tribute to him, really. But um, the, what we bring together as Nerf is we begin, uh, we, we focus on film. Yeah. And I think film's a major issue yeah. because we're surrounded by film all the time, especially mm. nowadays with the internet. Everything yeah. seems to have a, yeah. a surface, mm. whereas I think what we do is that we use the surface yeah. as a beginning. That's right, you've turned it all on its head by projecting things on ceilings and stairwells. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> and I think it works actually. <laughs> Even in a really modest small house like this, I think it, it shows you that you don't have to be confined to sitting in front of the goggle box as the only way to receive information or be glued to the computer. I mean, there's actually a dynamism about film Mm. which doesn't need to be contained in a Mm. black box. Mm. And and so that's what we've, we've, I think we've done well with. 
Filmmaker Trisha McRae took over the garden space to show her piece on the experience of upping stumps and moving from Cambridge to France. As an artist, um, what do you normally work with? Um, are you a painter or a sculptor? Or what do you um, do? I started oh. off with um, painting, mm. uh, drawing, mm. sculpture, mm. Uh, wood carving, like for 10 years. Mm. Um, but then my studio space um, was gone. I yeah. couldn't use my studio anymore, so I had to find some way of expressing myself. And I moved into film. Mm. And uh, I just immediately took off with it. It was fantastic. I really, really loved the whole sort of medium. It's really, really exciting. Now, now, now we're standing um, in the back garden here at um, Brunswick Terrace um, and you put a, a large sheet up um, yeah. on the wall and you're projecting your film um, yeah. on it. Everyone seems to be enjoying it very much. Tell me what's in the film and, and what's it um, about? Well, the, uh, every year uh, Neuf do um, a response to a domestic setting mm. and this year I've moved to France so I felt I didn't belong here. Mm. I felt that I wanted to be outside you know mm. sort of not in the hub of the house but so I, I've responded to the journey from my house to Ernie's house yeah. and it's it sort of um, relates to my journey from Cambridge to France as well um, so I've used um, Beckett's end game as a sort of dialogue um, mm. running through the film mm. and it's um, you know it's quite emotional for me really because mm. it's about abandoning abandoning things you know yeah, people yeah. and friends and mm. children and <laughs> everything you know so so it's about loss really mm -hmm. all of the footage is mm. literally mm. me putting the camera against mm. the window and driving mm. over so it's drive it's footage yeah. of of motion of me driving through and what's but going on in the heart and mind it, that's yeah, right yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. i mean i've highly manipulated it so um i am an editor really mm. mostly mm. i'm an mm. editor so i like um changing color and using filters to you know enhance footage mm. and stuff mm. like that and i'm a big big sound guy mm. so I mm. like to have um, interesting sounds digecting and non-digecting you know mm. to enhance the whole thing and, and, and so it's going around in a loop of what about eight or ten minutes or so how, how uh, five minutes five, five, five minutes so how, how long does it take you to create a piece like that oh uh, my uh, god <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I, I can I can make um, a film you know it's it's hours and hours and hours of editing absolutely hours yeah yeah I mean I I'm a uh, you know, I, I spend a long time doing it, mm. uh, frame by frame, yeah. frame by frame. Uh, an absolutely super, uh, a super event to come to. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sally Todd produced a film rotating on a turntable in the middle of the living room so that the screen area moves around the walls in a circle. I made a, a film in the round several years ago, um, which was a uh, super eight old film technology of the game of blind man's buff with a figure rotating in space, which seemed to fit with the subject matter. And when I came into Ernie's house and wanted to use the dining room because it spoke to me in some way, I found the very squareness of it uh, lent itself to that idea again about the parlour game, this sort of stifled box-shaped scale room, and I wanted to make a film that would somehow liberate and escape from its dimensions. So I suppose so it was a sense of like disorientating the domestic space mm. and using the notion of a game in the content of the film, this sort of restrained idea of the parlour game that's very um, ordered and, mm. you know, Sunday innocent, but... You work with, as a puppeteer, haven't you? Um, well, I do. I work as an artist in a theatre company. I have a theatre company with my partner. Um, yeah, so I work. I sort of do a lot of animating and materials. Um, we do work with puppetry as well. It's many shadow puppetry and images. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, very interesting. And what kind of reaction do you get from people to this? Um, I think it's quite a challenge to the audience because at first they feel like they have to follow physically the film in the space, but I think hopefully the sound and the narrative within the film grounds them so that they 
they don't necessarily need to see and follow the whole image. But I think it's about where they position themselves in relation to the film. It's for them to actually uh, respond. Uh, what's the scope of what this film covers? Um, it's well, it's playing with the notion of what's in the space. It's mm. using the physical trappings of what's there in yeah. the room to begin with. Yeah. But then I've looped it and also used other layers of film mm. that have revolved as well. So I'm mm. using revolving film. It's quite complex and earlier bits of footage... Yeah about domestic objects that are layered into this actual room now that we're sitting in. Sally Todd, a fantastically interesting piece. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Other artists in the group include Helen Judge, Steve Russell, Susanna Jeselek and Helena Green. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. Like the beat, beat, beat of the tom-tom When the jungle shadows fall Like the tick-tick-tock of the stately clock As it stands against the wall Like the drip, drip, drip of the raindrops When the summer shower is through So a voice within me keeps repeating You, 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 night and day the one Only you beneath the moon and under the sun Whether near to me or far It's no matter darling where you are I think of you night and day Day and night Why is it so that this longing for you follows wherever I go In the roaring traffic's boom In the silence of my lonely room I think of you night and day Day and night under the heart of me There's an oh such a hungry Burning inside of me And this torment won't be through Till you let me spend my life Making love to you day and night Night and day Day 
You may have possibly been taking advantage of the myriad of wonderful events on offer during the recent Festival of Ideas, and there's been much to discover across the city. Artist Golnar Malik invited me to meet a group of six painters exhibiting in the foyer of West Road Concert Hall to complement a stage performance of contemporary music and dance from the Cambridge Chanamay Centre. Other artists included Sama Sultani, Hamid Reza Gelich-Chani, Sergei Fiefanov, Veronika Shemanowska and Feruza Melville, all who worked on art specifically connected to the play Zahark, Dragon King of Persia. So why did both paintings and play attract historians from far afield concerned with the art and folklore of the ancient Silk Route across from the east? Well, University of Cambridge Professor of Persian History Charles Melville initiated me into the Shanameh, the ancient Persian Book of Kings. Shanama, yeah. tales of over a thousand years ago. Um, yeah. What's it all about? Um, what is this text? Well, it's a lot of stories joined together, essentially, um, of the kings of ancient Iran going back long before the historical period. I mean, the sort of myth of creation and the beginning of the world and the first man and the first king and the organization of society. And then we have um, a whole load of uh, sort of dramatic stories which are illustrating uh, you know how the world gets divided up, how Iran forms, it has its enemies on its left and its right, and so there are lots of battles. You know, it's a sort of a parable, really, of um, Iranian history as imagined uh, over the centuries. So this was passed down through the generations yeah. as folklore, as music, um, as myths and legends? Yeah, probably not so much as music at the time. I mean, it was orally recited, though. It's quite definite that there were readers, because most of the population was illiterate, of course, so this thing would be recited in... Um, the equivalent of cafes, palaces, that we know the ruler often had someone reading the Shah Nami at bedtime, as it were, you know, and uh, nice stories. Uh, what are some of the classic features of those stories? What kind of things happen? Well, there's a lot of emphasis on loyalty. Mm. Uh, a lot of the stories revolve around uh, kingship, of course, because it's a book of kings. And one of the problems is it's all right being loyal to a good king, but what if the king isn't good? What, what do you have to do? Uh, so this is, in other words, a sort of uh, exemplary model for the subjects obeying the rulers even if they're no good. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, in the end, a bad ruler gets his comeuppance. So it's a sort of ethics, of you know, political ethics in a way. I mean, there's a lot of advice. It's like a mirror for princes, you know, how rulers should behave, what happens if they don't, what the subjects have to do, like the compact. What, what do we come to? to ah, come well, to what we come to see tonight. This is one of the most dramatic stories because um, this is the first real tyrant, Zahark, and uh, again, it's a bit like uh, poor old Doctor Faustus or someone or anyone, you know, anyone who is seduced by the devil. Basically, he murders his father or Macbeth. I mean, you know, they're, they're just different cultures, but the same story. And he essentially is. Um, the devil comes and says, wouldn't it be nice if you were king? And you're only going to be king if you murder the old man. And he says, yeah, good idea. And he murders his father and he inherits his kingdom. And then he becomes king of Iran. He's welcomed as king of Iran. 
but then he starts uh, the devil comes back and says you know I'll show you a few nice things and then he gets the reward is to kiss the tie he just all I want to do is kiss your shoulders and when he kisses the shoulders these two great snakes come out and of course this is a terrifying and horrible thing mm. but he's sold his soul basically mm. you see yeah. that's the problem and so he then has to feed these snakes mm. uh, so he's a tyrant and he has to feed the snakes on the brains of young Iranian boys basically and someone in the end why why it's so important is it's partly because it's a story of tyranny but it's important because in the end the people rise up against it so again it's a sort of a model uh, and he's kicked out uh, and the rightful king returns and uh, you know and then it's the happiness in light again for a bit so it's the first time that really you get this dilemma and of course he's a sort of horrible creature in a way, but he's also an object of sympathy. And I think this is what um, Hussein, the uh, you know the composer, is is really exploring the different readings of. And, and you brought together this group of <coughs> six artists. Why did you well, that? it's actually mainly my wife who's done that. Mm. Um, I've been running this research project for years on the Shahnameh, which is mainly about the text of the of the epic and the paintings used to illustrate mm. it in the in mm. the manuscripts. Mm. But we're really trying to move beyond that to show how the, the, the poem is still relevant today you know modern Iranian uh, composers are writing operas and ballets about it you know people writing poems artists are doing paintings inspired by the stories so in other words it's not just a fantastic poem written a thousand years ago it's something that still means something and it means different you know obviously different things so uh, that, that's the idea is to show how um, it's still relevant if you like today and The mother of Golnar, who's Iranian, was fascinated by the epic of the Shanimar, as she herself is concerned with creative milieu both in life and fiction. Her work features powerful female figures from Iranian myth and history, centering on Islam, which she says has always severely restricted women's activities. She explores breaking rules as a timeless requirement, and ideas of freedom of expression and tradition in real history. The Shanameh tales cover themes of power play, embezzlement, elopement and risking it all for love. You're, you're taking um, tales that um, are a thousand years old um, and then you're working them into your paintings. Tell me a little bit about, bit about those. How, how did they come about? Yes, um, you know, Charles Merville and Fierce's wife mm. have um, compiled this wonderful database of 800 years of illustrations of yeah. Shahnameh. And that was a great inspiration for me. Mm. I was looking uh, in the research en engine for my name because I wanted to figure out what was the root of um, Lord Byron's Gulnar. Mm. And I found it in the Shahnameh, and I found all of these wonderful illustrations. And for me, it was quite revealing to see this thread. And also, my mother has been painting the Shahnameh from, from the beginning, when it's about the, the Stone Age man. So I kind of had this background, as everybody in, in my nationality. I am completely Persian. Mm. My parents are both from Shiraz, uh, which is the Persian bit mm. of Iran. Mm. I was first in Cambridge in 2006. Mm. So 
Um, for me, Cambridge was um, self-discovery as much as everything else that I've got here. <laughs> and this is, this is one of them. But I am um, very interested in mm. strong characters, especially if they are female. Um, because um, in contemporary Iran, I've seen so many of them that are less documented. And mm. I don't see any of those wonderful, wonderful, you know, typical Persian women who stand up for themselves. You don't see them in literature. And when you do, like you do in Shahnameh, it is very very much less so present. Nobody has heard of Golnar. Everybody is talking about other characters like mm. Sudaba mm. and Tahmina and such yeah. who already had a status. They were princesses and mm. they just did whatever they wanted to do. But nobody is looking at a slave who actually stood up for herself. This is the situation here in mm. Iran. So mm. for me, it is more to bring light into the darkness. Is Cleopatra a figure of great interest to you? Uh, yeah, she was actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the Hollywood movies as well, I must confess. <laughs> Uh, I mean, looking. I mean, looking for um, powerful women figures from um, ancient history um, is quite an interesting thing to do because obviously they they would never have been written up properly um, if they did exist or, or, or what have you. And so going into that um, it looks um, like an interesting um, departure. I mean, do, do you do you talk a lot to historians and people like that? To, to yeah. So um, actually, we had a talk on Saturday for yeah. the Festival of Ideas so, that historians like Charles also. Um, we're um, making the event going and we just added our, our, our paintings to it. Um, but, you know, tonight it is as much about a strong woman like Golnar um, as it is about Zahak, mm. which is, you know, it's opposite situation, both in terms of him being a man mm. and in terms of him being a demon who goes darker and darker rather than... C can, can we go into the individual tales of the three um, paintings which you've got on display here because that, they're all very interesting. Um, that the, the, the one where you have um, uh, um, uh, the woman who's climbing into um, uh, the, the room of somebody else, what's the story behind that? Because she was um, a person who was given great responsibility and then... then Possibly abused it or have you here? Uh, uh, well, well she, she knew her place yeah. because in the end she chose to remain a slave mm. and I think that is her strength. Mm. Can you tell me the story from the beginning then? Sure, yeah. 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 Well, uh, there was a king called Ardavan. Mm. Uh, he was the last king of the Ashkanid dynasty. Yeah. And um, this is a period in, in Iranian history that um, there were many different powers oh. around mm. and one of them... Um, was um, a person called Ardashir, hmm. who um, came to the king's palace as a guest. And Golnar, who was a slave, but also a favorite of the king, who was trusted with the treasury, saw him from the window and instantly fell in love with him. So he, she climbed his chamber with a rope, and she built up this courage of, of risking everything she had you know she wouldn't have survived if she'd been you know summoned and um into the darkness of of taking the risk whether this man wants her or not or you know what happens next and as you see this this picture looks at the contrast of the light the darkness the mystery hmm. and also it looks at the history behind it as well so the the archway on the bottom is a Sassanid archway it's a famous one it um it's called Tara Castro which still remains 
And the upper archway is an Ashkanid uh, archway that uh, shows the, the last dynasty, and she climbing from one to the other. Um, and also, it, the perspective shows that this is timeless. Hmm. Um, people who stand up for themselves and take a risk mm. and you know it's not about being right or wrong or about being good mm. or bad it is about the ability to stand up and make a decision for yourself. Um, you've lit that very interestingly from the back because you have um, a light behind it as well um, what, what is that supposed to add to I mean it, obviously it makes the picture light up from behind but but what was the purpose of doing that? It licenses up the detailing of, of the Ashkanid mm. um, archway yeah. it's the present it mm. is the light it is the known mm. whereas the Sasanid archway which is not lit and mm. it's plain it is what she knows about it, it is what mm she doesn't know about and mm. this is the darkness she's climbing into and mm. uh, also the light that you see is shining th through the torn bit of canvas right. that that is covered with mm. with epoxy resin that mm. you see the the kind of you know it is a dreamlike mm. notion of who is lying down below and mm. it is light because it is love mm. yeah. yeah that's true and then the other two you have like this um this figure um who was the devil's cook. Um, tell me about that one. Oh, well, um, he was the king's, uh, he was, he became the king because he killed his father who was the king. Mm. And he was a demon um, mm. from the beginning. But Satan took interest in him. Mm. So he, he, he took, he made himself into a cook looking person mm. and started cooking meat dishes for the first time in human history, as the book says. Mm. And then he was so fond of the cuisine that he told Satan, so, how am I going to reward you for all this? And he said, oh, kingship, could, could you please um, let me kiss your shoulders? So he was possessed by snakes and two snakes grew from his shoulders and no matter what he did, they, they would grow back. So it is a kind of, um, it is mythical, but there is also some realistic kind of, no contemporary notions of it that interests me because mm. in, in the Far Eastern um, ideology mm. um, there is things such as being possessed by a snake. Mm. And, and the two women involved, how did they come to be in the, in the Well, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, so mm, so when he, he took Persia over as well, he was, he was an Arab mm. and he invaded Persia and the king had uh, two daughters so he 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 just um, made made them to become witches for him, mm. and they were like under his wing until mm. Feridun set mm. them free later on in the, in the story. But this picture shows Zahak being enthroned, mm. and he is um, he's in a framework in there because he's got his boundaries, mm. despite the fact that he's trying to break it. He's trying to make mm. everything black for a thousand years. Mm. But he's got also his boundaries, and mm. also you can see the boundaries and and the kind of composition mm. that I've used in in older Persian illustrations, mm. which go back to 800 years. Mm. My favorite bit is the two two mirrors that mm. uh, that show the self deceit, mm. uh, the way he has to confront himself. Yeah at some point and also that also has a reference to the compositions and miniatures mm. that they're quite empowering and mm. you just sometimes happen to miss the point because all of these ornamentations are like juxtapositioned into the painting. Mm. Mm. 
Um, they're, they're wonderfully um, uh, colourful paintings, um, and obviously quite a lot of them are, uh, are in relief with wonderful aesthetics, and they're, they're very mysterious as well. Um, this one is about a bird. Can you tell me about this, um, th this mythical bird um, figure and how that came about? Yes, well, this mythical bird is called Seymour. Um, he was she was wonderfully elaborate, mm. and um, so she um, gave birth to Rustam, and mm. Rustam is um, is a hero in Shahnam, and very much much like Achilles, he he he's got a very long um, tail mm. of of uh, winning over uh, competitors, and he's so big that his mother won't be is not able to give birth to him so Seymour comes and gives her a c-section 4000 years ago <laughs> and then um so Rustam arrives and she takes care of him afterwards hmm. so she nurtures a human being and then when he's grown up and he's gone off um she gives him a piece of her feather and whenever he he needed her he would burn it and she would show up so this image shows the magic of of salvation of how probably Rostam would have felt with her encounter mm. uh, it's the uplifting it's the powerful it is it is the the feminine also Golda mm. Eros uh, thank you very much indeed thank you Simon
Contemporary Cambridge Choir dedicated to bringing choral music into the 21st century and quite gloriously, I can promise, has just launched its long-awaited first CD ahead of performances this coming week. Conkalender Choir, which seeks to play modern music with more visually exciting stage performance, began life amongst music scholars in Cambridge over a year ago under the directorship of Alexandra Schwinn, a 23-year-old choral scholar from America currently at Jesus College who initially founded the group at Sydney Sussex College Chapel to fully exploit its marvellous acoustics. She dropped into 105 to tell us about it. Here I am with a very special person in the 105 studios, um, Alexandra Schwinn. You've just launched a CD. Can you tell me about what's on it? Sure. It's uh, all living British composers. Um, There's a pick mix of seven different composers, 13 tracks... We've got uh, a couple of tracks by Paul Mueller and Jonathan Dove, Gabrielle Jackson, Alexander Kampkin did a commission, um, so did Andrew Cussworth, mm. um, Alex Patterson. Um, are you performing at the moment in, in conjunction with the launch of the, the, the CD? We are. We mm-hmm. have um, a concert on Thursday the 21st in St. Giles Church in Cambridge, yeah. um, which is really exciting, which will be our CD launch concert, but will also act as sort of a Christmas Concert. Um, I saw um, last time I saw you. I dropped in to see you in the Sydney Sussex College um, Chapel, and you were all working intensely um, towards this. Um, since then, you've had a number of performances, haven't you? Um, have they all gone? And, and and what's happened with the choir? Is there any stories you can tell me about it? Or, yeah. Um, um, I mean, it's been an exciting few months since I last saw you, <laughs> um, to say the least. We've had um, just one other concert since then, um, but lots of projects, recordings, things like that, that have all been released mm-hmm. and things. So we had our music video that was released in July, and then we had a remix competition in September that was released in October with our debut single. The album obviously came out today, so mm. there will be lots of promotions and videos to go along with that. We'll be um, having the concert on Thursday, which will be filmed, and then we'll have releases for our... We're going to launch a live section on our YouTube channel of us doing things live, and then there are 
couple of other video projects that are in the works, including um, composer profiles and kind of scratch videos of us performing around different mm. places. Um, for you, you're the kingpin of the whole operation as the, the choir director. I know that you work very, very hard because I've seen you um, um, doing that. Um, how does it feel for you to have got this project from the starting point right up to the point where you're launching um, CDs and giving all of these um, performances, which are obviously thrilling people to bits? Well, um, it's it's been very exciting. I think my, my biggest um, excitement about all of the launches is that I've had all of this stuff in the works for the last year. And I kind of feel like we've been building and building and building, but haven't really been able to show the world anything yet. And now that we've built up a social media stance with Facebook and Twitter and everything, we're able to kind of... Now I'm able to say this is actually the sound that we have and, you know, world check out Concanenta, whereas before it was kind of me saying that we were going to do things, but not many people having actually heard anything that the choir had done. So um, You're also planning to do some performances in London, weren't you, at some point? Mm. Um, is that coming up? Or? Well, oh. we, we have some uh, projects that are in the work planning works for 2014, mm. um, but nothing's been officially announced yet, so... <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, um, Concanenda, I can vouch for them because I've been to one of their rehearsals. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, let, let's play a, play a tune.
Looking at a past experience or perhaps a well-known place in retrospect can play interesting tricks on the mind and memory, especially if it's a place or thing that you love. A new exhibition has just opened by Cambridge artist Gail de Cordova at Clare Hall Gallery, which runs until December the 18th and is open daily, and it's well worth the bike ride as I discovered. Gail works with oil, plaster and tissue paper on acrylics to create suggested landscapes based on the memory of places she loves. Drawing on a rugged Cornish childhood and travels in Spain, she produces landscapes that touch off the imagination and do wonderful things to you in terms of their pleasing aesthetics. She gave me a brief introduction to the work. Okay, I'll tell me a little bit about your, your past. What's your background and how did you come to be an artist? I've actually trained many years ago as a fine artist. Well, I, had a, I took a degree in painting at Exeter College of Art and Design. Mm. 1981 I graduated and I've actually been painting ever since. So, mm. um, Is this latest collection all new work that you're showing here at the moment? This is mostly done in the last year to year and a half with one or two of the larger works being older but not much older. <laughs> um, and they're, they're basically um, a, a, quite a collection of what you might describe as landscapes but they have a little bit they're a little bit different from landscapes aren't they? Um, what is it about your paintings what do you try to do? Well, they're kind of inner landscapes, I think, but they're, they're memory and places that um, have meant a lot to me. And I've, I've sort of, they're almost been distilled over time. You see, I don't go somewhere, paint it. I might make some drawings, but what happens is over time and memory, dis well, then they, I create them later on. Mm. Um, we're standing in front of um, a, a fantastic... Um, blue um, canvas, it's very, very bright, um, like a, f a, a, a beautiful remembered place. It's a cove, isn't it, in Cornwall? Um, but it's not um, as the cove as a landscape, it's as you remember something that you love, um, as a kind of abstract kind of thing as well in the landscape. Um, right. Tell me about this, because there's a story behind this painting that's interesting. Um, well, yes, this is painting really from my memory of Prussia Cove, which is where I grew up. Mm. And um, it's a very amazing place, actually, and it's got this wonderful history. The King of Prussia, who was a pirate, who was a local known character at the time. Um, and for me, I suppose it's the texture and the sensation and, and that kind of deep connection I have with the place. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I sort of don't paint it for a while, and then it just... It has to, it just comes again and I have to paint it. Mm. You know. There are some really um, wild and remote um, big beaches, aren't there, in Cornwall, um, in, in places that you, especially in winter, you get these fantastically big seas, um, massive rock outcrops and cliffs and things like that. And it's all about getting that sort of ruggedness, isn't it? Um, it is, into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do, I never think of Cornwall as this cosy, sort of cute little place. It's a very raw kind of energy that you get there and, and um, the elements you're very aware of that and as you said these granite cliffs and it's, there's quite a, a drama. <laughs> do, you, do you seek to touch off memories of places um, in, in your work because they're not they're not graphic landscapes they're almost uh, kind of um, half remembered half imagined as well aren't they? That's right mm. that's right the sort of dream comes in as well and um, <laughs> yeah that comes into play mm. and it's so Okay. No, I was going to say, so in a sense they're very different because it's going to be my memory, my perception of mm. somewhere. Mm. Um, and also you're building up um, some of these um, with um, uh, 
things um, on the inside. You were describing earlier about um, how you uh, build up a relief in your, your paintings by putting them on the floor. How does that process work? Yes, I start. It's almost like a prayer because I sort of kneel and then I actually move around the canvas. It lies on the floor because some of the materials I'm using, like the plaster that I use and some very watery materials would just slide off if I was painting them conventionally. Mm. But there's there's a point at which I do turn it up and decide, mm. well, that's the top, that's the bottom, and I carry on painting it. Mm. And those aesthetics giving some parts of the, 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 the painting in relief and, and, and others um, at the back, it gives you a sense of nearness and farness and distance and perspective. That's an interesting way of working. Did you, did you just come across that, or did you think about that very carefully before you did it? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in a different way of creating the space. And I'm, I love the Japanese prints, for example, and how they create some kind of space, but it's all very flat. Mm. Um, and with me, obviously, there's all the texture in there, and then the, the flat is the, the sort of almost watery underneath bits, mm. you know, with the almost like watercolour. But it's mm. how, how many paintings have you got here at the? Um, I've got 46. Watermelon and sunsets. Yeah. Um, how would you describe that yourself? Well, that's kind of um, got this sort of lusciousness of eating a watermelon for me, and these almost like seeds here, mm -hmm. and the colour as well, and the sunset very reminiscent of a Spanish sunset which has that terrific sort of orangey red and there's even some gold in there so yeah that's a kind of hmm. sensual. Um, and you've travelled quite a bit in Spain and Portugal have you? Have you? I've, I've lived in Spain and my children are actually from Spain and my ancestors are from Cordoba hence my name. So you had so. A, a Cornish childhood and then adventures <laughs> in Spain as well which yeah. were and what were your influences as an artist? Um, what, what kind of affected your, your choices as Oh, all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've just recently been to that Paul Clay exhibition in London, and he's a terrific, great influence. As are um, the Spanish artists, people like Anthony Tapies, with all the textures, and um, some of the Renaissance masters as well. So lots of different. Um, how long will this show be going on for? And this goes on to the 18th of December. The 18th of so. December, so people have got lots and lots of time to come and look at this exhibition. Yes, I hope they come. Um, so imagination and, and memory are very important to you then. Um, it, it's, it's sort of reflecting on what you've experienced and then creating art from that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even with Katerina's pots, my mm. neighbour Katerina Klug, the potter, she, her, they, they're not literally her pots, but somehow they've got into my system. And so there are elements of her pots that will crop up. Mm. Um, and how do you want people to look at these? Um, what do you want them to take away from, from Well, I, I like people to bring their own imaginations to play. You know, I like them to look at it and then perhaps there's a place that they can identify with. Um, mm. And that often happens. I, have, I had an exhibition in Sweden mm. and people were saying, oh, you, this is the, you know, coming up to me and saying, this is the north of Sweden. I, I re this is how it is. And mm. I've never been there. So that excites me. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. The word home means something markedly different to each and every one of us. And that simple theme has recently been centre of an international short story competition run by Cambridge-based Ascance Publishing. Holmes, the Escant's 2004 short story collection, is an anthology of 19 competition finalists, and each one has a unique and peculiar slant and angle, which the Escant's brand prides itself in looking for. 
At the book launch at Charity of the Year Emmaus, I spoke to Askance Publishing's Caroline Jane, first prize-winning author Margaret Loach, and book cover fine artist Jane Fisher. How diverse were the stories that were actually um, entered into the competition? Incredibly diverse. Um, We were anticipating there might be lots of depressing stories about homelessness, but in fact um, they were hugely um, diverse. There were stories, Margaret's story, which was the winner, was um, told from the point of view of a house. Um, There were stories from all over the world about journeys, about the spiritual sense of home as well as the physical. And does, that, does it sort of turn your assumptions about what goes on in other people's homes, as it were, or notions of home that are, that are different from what you might expect? At Absolutely. All? Yeah, yeah. Not only the, do the stories mm. um, acknowledge the difference in people's feeling mm. of what the word homes means, but working with Emmaus in Cambridge, I've come to understand how diverse homeless people are and the paths that have led them to homelessness. Um, with, with the connection with Emmaus, were there um, entries from people who actually work or live and work in the Emmaus community that are there, in there were, I'm really pleased to say that the book opens with um, quite an experimental piece of writing by one of Amers' companions. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Margaret, um, tell me about your work, because your piece actually won. Um. Um, my short story is called Abandon, and it's set in the town that I grew up in, partly, in the United States of America, um, just outside of Chicago, really. And it's a story that is um, told from the perspective of a house. So the narrator is a house. Um, And it's a house that is um, an old mansion from the days of sort of the giant car manufacturing plants in that part of the States. Um, And the house is in disrepair and is really falling apart. And it's about how the house is in feeling about that and um, feeling about a man who comes along who wants to renovate it. And the house is... um, at odds, really, with the man's plans. So there's a kind of genus loci in the house um, with its past and its past story, and someone comes to change that. Is that what happens? Um, a little bit. I think the house has a feeling of um, of um, this sort of um, the organic nature, um, the world around taking the house over, so sort of giant moulds growing in the kitchen and the walls crumbling and the mice and the raccoons in the attic and that sort of thing. So um, the house um, the house also has an occupant, um, a man, a homeless man, who is living in a cupboard in the attic um, during the winter months. So the, the story really does play with this idea of home and what home means. So on the one side you have the home itself and how it feels about being a house and its history of the sort of grandeur um, and what it's become and what it's becoming. Um, and also the idea of home from a homeless person's perspective um, and the idea of home from the man who wants to renovate the house and bring it back to its state of, gra- of grandeur, basically. Um, and how do you feel about being the winning entry? I'm most excited. I'm really, really pleased. I've been writing short stories for a couple of years now, and um, this is the sort of um, most success I've received. So um, I'm really, really delighted, and it's wonderful to be part of um, part of this publication, part of Ascans, part of um, Emmaus. Um, it's just very wonderful, yeah. That sounds like an absolutely fascinating story. Now, Jane, you did the um, the actual um, illustration for the book, is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? How did your idea develop? Um, well, I'm I'm just finishing off my fine art degree mm. uh, at the moment in Colchester, and I've been working with found uh, mm. photographs, found transparencies, um, and it's just something I've been working on, so layering up, um, and the the cover is a kind of projection which also involves, as it turns out, a wooden crate. Um, and I just thought the image worked with the theme when I saw the, 
the uh, you know the poster for the competition. You must be very pleased with the, the way it's turned out. Mm, very <laughs> pleased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What a super project! Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's time to take a brief glimpse of what's coming up in the city in the next few weeks, some of which will be out of date if you're listening to the rerun of this programme in early December. If you fancy a bit of atmosphere, the Four Seasons by Candlelight with the Mozart Festival Orchestra in 18th century costume performs at the Corn Exchange on December the 3rd. And there's an evening of burlesque on Saturday, December the 7th at the same venue. A new exhibition has opened at Kettle's Yard Gallery featuring the house and collection of Victor Skip, a legacy of extraordinary art objects, primitive art, modernism, philosophy and literature. Pantomime Robin Hood opens at the Arts Theatre on December the 5th. Kenny Wax Limited's What the Ladybird Heard, based on the award-winning picture book, opens at the Corn Exchange on the 11th of December. And the Fairhaven Singers concert season with conductor Ralph Woodward features performances at Jesus College Chapel on the 7th and 8th of December, including work by Benjamin Britten and Gabrielli as music of Advent and Christmas. And that's all we have time for in this edition of Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed listening in on Cambridge 105 Community Radio. I'm Simon Burton, and if you have an art story to tell, send us an email. Music